Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, for the message, Our Savior's Sacrifice. All right, so we've entered a special time for the church. It's a week known as Passion Week. Some people call it Holy Week. So Passion Week starts today on Palm Sunday. It reaches its peak on Good Friday, and then it reaches its highest peak on Easter. Today, being Palm Sunday, of course, we're gonna focus on Palm Sunday. And at the end of the message, I'm gonna just touch on briefly Good Friday, and we're gonna focus on the cross before we close in prayer. Very interesting, this Thursday, Pastor Will, during our first Thursday gathering at 6.30, is gonna talk and define a Maundy Thursday. You say, what in the world is Maundy Thursday? Well, come this Thursday, you'll find out, and then you can receive communion and celebrate, because we're gonna baptize a bunch of people this Thursday. Next weekend, as I keep saying, we're gonna celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And now, before we kick off Passion Week, we gotta answer this question first right here. Why did the Savior come? Why did he come? Why did Jesus come? Why is this so important? I mean, if we could just be good enough, right, and then die and go to heaven because we're good enough, why did he come? Why did the Son of God leave his Father's side, add a human nature to his already eternally existing divine nature, and enter our world through the virgin's womb in what is called the incarnation? Why did he come? Well, here's why in the Savior's words right here. He said, I quote, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, here it is, ladies and gentlemen, and to give his life as a, what's the word? Ransom, that means payment or price. Ransom for many. The Savior came to sacrifice his life for our sins, thus paying the ransom, thus paying the payment, thus paying the price in order to set us free. All right, so what is that price? What is that payment? What is that ransom? It's death. And so Jesus came he was born to die upon Calvary. Everything in his life pointed to the cross, including his very impactful three-year ministry. And so after three years of giving sight to the blind, sound to the deaf, strength to the crippled, smooth skin to lepers, and sanity to the demonized. After three years of doing all these miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle, which by the way, authenticated both his message and his Messiahship. After that, those three years were done, Jesus came to the final week of his earthly life. And on the Sunday of that last week, he knew it's finally time for me to make my triumphal entry into Jerusalem and present myself as the Messiah. Now, as the Messiah, you would have thought that Jesus would have chose to enter into the capital city on a big, beautiful white horse. But ladies and gentlemen, that animal would have to wait until his second coming. For his first coming, Jesus knew he had to fulfill the ancient prophecy found in Zechariah. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, what's the next two words? Your king. Let me tell you something. Nothing's more important than this right here. Nothing's more important than that we recognize that the king has already come and we need to submit our lives to the king. It's not about us, it's about him. The world doesn't revolve around us. The world revolves around Jesus Christ. He came. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. And you guys please finish the verse. The foal of a donkey. Now for the Jews who knew their Bibles, I should say their scrolls, they knew when they saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey that that guy is proclaiming himself as the Messiah. Oh, I know that verse, Zechariah 9.9, 500 years before Christ. But for the Romans who didn't know the Bible, all they knew is that guy... Whoever he is riding in on the donkey, here's what we know, guys, Roman soldiers. He's coming in peace and not to make war. And so I want you to try to get the feel for the atmosphere in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You need to know if you're new to the Bible that the Passover feast is coming very soon. Just in a matter of days. What does that mean? That means that there were hundreds of thousands of Jews from all around the Roman Empire. We're talking Italy, we're talking Greece, we're talking um, um, Asia Minor, we're talking Syria, we're talking Northern Africa. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, Jews, converging on the city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And whenever you get that many Jews in one place, you know that messianic expectation was through the roof. And when they heard that Jesus is coming to town, yeah, Jesus, the one who recently raised a dead man named Lazarus from the grave. John's gospel tells us that that was the talk of the town during the triumphal entry. He raised Lazarus from the dead. What happened? They all ran out to meet him, super excited. Now, what was the makeup of this large crowd on the first Palm Sunday? Well, we know as we correlate the gospels, look at the different gospels. His disciples, they were part of the crowd. And by the way, a disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement is this, just as Jesus can see into the hearts back then to see who's his disciples and who are not, he sees in all of our hearts in this room this morning. And he knows whether we're real or whether we're not real. His disciples were there. His enemies were there as well. Jesus, tell these people to shut up, right? Hey, if they stop praising me, the rocks are going to cry out. These Pharisees who later on Friday would whip up the crowd to ask Barabbas to be released as opposed to Jesus, who wanted to turn the opinion of the crowd against Jesus, they were there. Believe it or not, there were some in Jerusalem who were unfamiliar with Jesus who is this man, Matthew 21, 10? And the answer in verse 11 is those who were familiar with Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet. They hadn't necessarily committed themselves to him as the Messiah, but he's a prophet from Nazareth. Now, I want you to see how big this crowd is. Even Jesus' enemies said, quote, 
look, the world has gone after him. That's a big crowd. I want you to look at John's eyewitness account. Ladies and gentlemen, don't believe everything you read. The New Testament is not fairy tales and it's not legend. The New Testament is the product of eyewitness account. Written down, John said, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So look at this. They took branches of, what kind of trees? Welcome to Palm Sunday. And they went out to meet him, crying out, <clears throat> Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Matthew tells us that they took these palm branches and they laid them on the ground before the mounted Messiah. They took off their robes. They laid in kind of like the red carpet you know, um, entrance, uh, paying homage and respect to the one mounted on the foal of a donkey. And they also shouted, Hosanna. What does that mean? That means, listen to this, save now. That's very important for the rest of our study. And so on the count of three, can you say save now? One, two, three, go. Save now. Save now. Hosanna. Hosanna. Where did they get that phrase from? They got it from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. And so anticipating the Messiah's arrival, the psalmist said, we think this is 10th century BC right here. Here it is. Save us. We pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray, give success. Does this sound familiar? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting Psalm 118, shouting it at Jesus and waving their palm branches. Now the fact that they were waving palm branches reminds us of another Jewish crowd that lived 200 years before the time of Christ. Hit your pause button, the first century AD, go backwards 200 years to 164 BC. And after the successful result of the Maccabees against the Seleucid or Greek Empire in 164 BC, guess what the Jews did in Judea and around Jerusalem? They went out to the streets and they waved their palm branches. Why? They were celebrating their liberation from the oppression of the Greek enemy. You guys see what's going on in Jesus' day? You see, the Jews of Jesus' day were waving palm branches because they wanted Jesus to deliver them from their Roman oppressors, just as Judas Maccabeus liberated the Jews from their Greek oppressors two centuries before. They wanted the kingdom now. And the way we know that is because Luke says this, the people thought, that the kingdom of God was gonna appear, what's the last two words? At once. Jesus, save us from the Romans now. We want the kingdom now. We want prosperity and blessing now. But there was a problem. The salvation that Jesus came to give was not the salvation that the crowd wanted. 
You see, ladies and gentlemen, the crowd, well, they wanted Jesus to conquer the Romans, but he was there to conquer sin and death. They wanted him to save their nation, but he was there to save their what? And you know what was so sad? Is that later in the week, later in Passion Week, when they figured out that Jesus had no intention of delivering them from the Romans, guess what they did? They became disillusioned and they walked away from Jesus. He didn't meet their expectations. So what did they do? They rejected him. And the Lord, how many of you guys know Jesus is the sovereign savior? He can see right into our hearts. And he saw right into their hearts. And he knew, you're not gonna commit yourself to me. All you want is prosperity and blessing now. And so guess what? All the shouts of Hosanna and all the waving of the palm branches didn't faze Jesus one bit. In fact, listen to this. The materialistic, earthly, self-serving shouts of the unbelievers in the crowd broke Jesus' heart. I want you to see what Luke said. When Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. This is on the first Palm Sunday. This is while he's, while he's going down into Jerusalem on the donkey. They're cheering. He's tearing. He wept over it, saying, would that you, Jerusalem, even you had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now you're blinded, spiritually blinded. They are hidden from your eyes. You're not gonna commit yourself to me. I see right into your heart. All you want is prosperity and blessing now. And as you continue to read Luke 19, the Lord, how many of you guys know that everything Jesus says always comes true? And what did he do? He prophesied over Jerusalem the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which by the way happened in history 37 years later in A.D. 70. And so, Jesus, save us from the Romans now. We want the kingdom now. We want prosperity and blessing now. But when he didn't meet their expectations, the tune for him in their hearts changed, and it changed in just a matter of days. You see, on Sunday, the crowd shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But on Friday, what did they shout? Crucify him. Crucify him. The question is, was it the same crowd on Friday as it was on Sunday? Well, it's unlikely that it was the exact same crowd to the very person But I want you to follow the logic of my thinking here. Because it was the same city, and it was the same week, and it was the same Passover festival, and since Jesus was the talk of the town, and the crowds would be following this miracle man as much as they could throughout the entire week that we call Passion Week, it is very likely that many who praised Jesus on Sunday did in fact condemn him to death on Friday. Crowds are fickle, but God knows our hearts. The Lord didn't meet their expectation, 
So they rejected him. Now, how many of you guys know that the Bible always has application to our lives? Do you guys think this has anything to do with our lives today? Well, it leads us to this soul-searching question right here. Will we still follow Christ if he doesn't meet our expectations? You see, sadly, many people have fallen prey to what is known as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which, by the way, is not a gospel. Also known as the word of faith movement. They've fallen prey to that or something similar to that. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. In and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with health. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with prosperity. Here's my question today. In the context of what we're dealing with in the story, in the context of the fact that because Jesus didn't meet their materialistic expectations, they turned their back on the Lord. In that context, my question on this Palm Sunday to all of you and myself included is what if the Lord doesn't bless us with those things? Are we still gonna follow him? And so before we move on, there's a couple corrections I need to make as a pastor to correct lies that are floating around in churches today. You see, some people believe that God always, always wants us to be healthy in this life. My question is, have you read the whole Bible? Because what do you do with 2 Kings 13, 14? The story of Elisha. You guys remember Elijah and Elisha? And you remember Elijah, before he's taken up into heaven, um, Elisha says, give me, I pray for a double portion of your spirit, right? And then guess what? Elisha in his ministry does twice as many miracles as Elijah, 28 compared to 14. Elisha, the miracle man, the one who helped so many people. 2 Kings 13, 14, and I quote, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Was it a lack of faith that Elisha got sick? Is it because he didn't claim the promises of God? Please, give me a break. What about what Paul said to Timothy? 1 Timothy 5, 23, quote, Use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Timothy, the young pastor, has a chronic stomach issue, a chronic stomach sickness. First century um, medicinal remedy, Paul says, son, take a little wine for your chronic stomach problem. Is it because of the young pastor's lack of faith? Is that why he's sick so much? Is it because he's not claiming the promises of God? Please, give me a break. What about Paul's thorn in the flesh? Paul said that he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. When you receive that many revelations from God, you tend to get a big head. <laughs> and so what happened? He got a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times for relief. The Lord said this. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in, what's the word? Weakness. Did Paul say, well, if you're not gonna bless me now, I'm out of here. No. Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. The New King James Version correctly uh, translates that Greek word as infirmities. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with infirmities, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. That doesn't sound like health, wealth, and prosperity to me. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. If you're with me and you're listening, say amen. The same Greek word that Paul used in 1 Timothy 5.23 to describe Timothy's chronic stomach sickness is the same Greek word he used in 2 Corinthians 12.9 for his weakness, which was the result of his thorn in the flesh. This is why most Bible scholars think it was the thorn in the flesh, a physical ailment. But still, some people persist. God always wants us to be healthy. So what do you do with the Lord's statement to Moses when Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh and talk to Pharaoh? Moses was like, God, I don't talk really well. And God said, well, who makes the mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I'll be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what you will speak. And so when God created the world, you need to understand he created it perfect. There was no sin, there was no sickness, there was no death, there was no natural disasters, but Adam and Eve sinned, and the fall of man occurred, and that brought in sin, and sickness, and death, and natural disasters. But here's some good news this morning for you, that even though mankind has sinned, God is still sovereign, that even though we live in a fallen world, God is still sovereign. And listen to this statement right here. He can use sickness to fulfill his sovereign purpose. Yes, it's true. I know it doesn't line up with the guy you see on TV. Maybe you need to shut him off and start reading the Bible. God, I'll say it again, can use sickness to fulfill his sovereign purpose, like the blind man in John 9, one through three, who God allowed to be born blind. Why? Because his parents sinned? No. Because he sinned? No. Jesus said, so that God's works might be displayed in that blind man. And we're so thankful that Jesus healed that blind man on that day. But ladies and gentlemen, don't you realize that God does not always choose to heal? How many of you have ever heard of Fanny Crosby? My goodness. Fanny Crosby, godly woman lived from 1815 to 1920. She wrote over 8,000 hymns for the church, including Blessed Assurance and Be Thou Exalted. She was blind her whole life. And regarding her blindness, she said, and I quote, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. 
and I thank him. Not, Hosanna, save now. Oh, you're not gonna save me? You're not gonna heal me? See ya. No, I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things all around me. Question, was Fanny Crosby blind her whole life because she didn't have enough faith to be healed? Because she didn't claim the promises of God? Please, Fanny Crosby had more faith in her fingernail than most Christians have in their whole bodies. And so here's the bottom line. It was God's will in a fallen world for this woman to be blind. And if somebody says, well, that's cruel, then my question to you is this. Is she blind now? Is she blind now? No. But that's the problem with me-centered Christianity in America. We think it's all about us. We think it's all about this life. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here today, gone tomorrow. Your life is a vapor, and we're gonna be over there a lot longer than we're here. And so we live to the glory of God no matter what our lot in life is. And Fanny Crosby so looked forward to heaven that she said, and I quote, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Somebody says, well, what about the verse, by his stripes we are healed? Shouldn't we, pastor, stand on that verse that because of Jesus' stripes with a flagellum that we are healed? Shouldn't we stand on that in faith and claim our healing even though we have symptoms of being sick or whatever? My goodness, what is going on in the church? I love Pastor David Guzik's commentary on that verse. By the way, if you're not familiar, this is one of the most solid Bible teachers in America. And he said, some have taken this to mean that every believer has the right, the promise, to perfect health right now. And if there is any lack of health, it is simply because the promise has not been claimed in faith. In this thinking, great stress is laid upon the past tense of this phrase, by his stripes we are healed. The problem of this view, not even counting how it terribly contradicts the personal experience of saints in the Bible and through history, is that it misunderstands the verb tense of both salvation and healing. We can say without reservation that perfect, you guys gotta get this, perfect, total, complete healing is God's promise to every believer in Jesus Christ paid for by his stripes and the totality of his work for us. But we must also say that it is not promised to every believer right now. Just as the total or totality of our salvation is not promised to us right now. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about he's equating salvation with healing. And there's three aspects of our salvation. You guys know this. There's justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification, listen to this, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, I'm being saved 
from the power of sin. Glorification, praise God, I will be saved from the very presence of sin. And so our healing in this life and our healing overall sometimes is the same. Some have been miraculously healed in the past. We've seen it in our church. We thank God for it. Some are in the process of being healed in the present. But listen to this and praise God with me for this. Ladies and gentlemen, all Christians will be fully healed at the resurrection because by his stripes we are healed. We thank God for that. And so when we're sick, should we pray in faith for healing? Yeah. God is able, and he still does miracles today. But in our hearts, we always have to have that submissive attitude like our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. I don't want the health, wealth, prosperity, or the, or the word of faith teachings in this church, okay? Don't want it here. Another correction that I have to share is some believe God wants us to be financially prosperous and poverty is a lack of faith or a lack of positive confession. What? Poverty is a lack of faith or a lack of positive confession. Really? Okay, so what do you do with all the faithful saints in third world countries? What do you do with all those people I've met down in Haiti who love Jesus Christ with all their hearts and they're serving the Lord, but they barely have enough to get by? Listen, if your doctrine only works in prosperous America and not for the rest of the world, it's probably a false doctrine. Question, was the Lord always financially prosperous? Come on, he was born in a poor family in Nazareth. He worked as a common carpenter. During his ministry, he was often homeless and he was broke. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay down his head. One time, Jesus didn't have enough money on him to pay the temple tax. And so he said, hey, Peter, go fishing. The first fish you, you catch, cut it open. There's gonna be a coin in there. Pay the temple tax for you and me. Okay, so if the Lord sometimes lacked material blessings, why do we think we're guaranteed material blessings? Because somebody on TV told us we need to get discipled, we need to know the word so we're not duped. We need to have the attitude of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter four who said this, if you're with me, say amen. I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the biblical position on the topic. You see, there's nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money, Paul wrote to Timothy, that is the root of all evil. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It, it, 
It is through this craving, this desire for materialism and money, that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. But some in the church ignore Paul. And like the people 2,000 years ago, they still cry out, Hosanna, save now, health, wealth, and prosperity now. But what if God doesn't meet our expectations in this life? What if he uses difficulty, hardship, and trials in order to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ? Are we still gonna follow him? You see, in this age of me-centered Christianity, we gotta remember the words of Jesus Christ who said, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Listen, that's when you're healthy and when you're sick, when you're wealthy or if you're poor. In the good times or the bad times, all of us need to follow Jesus Christ. And listen, follow his teachings. Open it up, read it, and live it because that's what it means to be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. Somebody says, well, pastor, if I'm not guaranteed material blessings in this life, why in the world should I follow Jesus? Well, here's a good reason. Because of his great love for you, demonstrated by his sacrifice on the cross. You see, as we wind down today, I wanna think about Good Friday, which is all about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so crucifixion didn't originate with the Romans, it originated with the Persians, but the Romans perfected it. And they used it as a tool. They used it as a tool to slowly torture and kill their enemies. And they always did it, by the way, they, they crucified thousands and thousands of people. And they always did it publicly. And the reason they did it publicly, because they wanted to send a clear message to all their subjects, don't ever even think about rebelling against Caesar. And the process was brutal. First, they would force the victim's hands down on the horizontal beam and they would drive spikes through the wrists. And then they would force the legs down upon the vertical beam and they would drive one large spike through the feet. And you know, as well as I do, they didn't have to force Jesus' arms down. He was in control, not them, and he willingly opened up his arms. When I was a teenager, I had a plaque on my wall in my bedroom at home. It looked a lot like that, except it had words on the side. And the words said, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And he said, this much. And he stretched out his arms and he died. And that, on my bedroom wall, did something in my mind, in my heart, as I continued to grow up. And so the suffering involved in being crucified, it went way beyond being nailed to wood. It also involved slow suffocation. You see, the victim's body weight would just cause his body to sag down, and you can't breathe in that position. And so the victim would have to 
push up on his already wounded, bleeding feet in order to gasp for a breath. And then he would fall back down again over and over until he's so exhausted, he just stays down and he suffocates. In addition to all this, the victim had to worry about predatory birds pecking at his face or because they crucified Victims much lower than modern art depicts today. They had to worry about predatory animals chewing on their feet. How did the victims die? Sometimes blood loss, sometimes suffocation, sometimes dehydration, sometimes heart failure, and sometimes predatory animals. And I know people are thinking right now, oh, those poor victims. But here's what you gotta hear today. Jesus Christ was not a victim. He is the victor. He's the victor. <laughs> Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus Christ was in control of the whole thing. So what happened? What really happened? Well, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He became a curse in our place. Ladies and gentlemen, our sin means we deserve to die and go to hell. But he became a curse in our place as our substitute. I'm so glad our new logo is all about the cross because that's where salvation is centered, not our works, the cross. He became an offering for our sin. And as Jesus hung between heaven and earth, Isaiah 53, 10, God poured out his wrath on the sin of all mankind, on his son. You say, why did he do that? Because God's got two natures. He's a God of justice and he's a God of love. Romans 6, 23a, for the wages of sin is what? Death, that's God's justice, that's gotta be satisfied. We sin, we have to die, not just physically but spiritually forever in a place called hell. The wages of sin is death. But, aren't you glad for the buts in the Bible? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's love. How does it come together? Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Justice, love, kiss on the cross. We receive his payment. We put our, turn from our sin and put our trust in Christ and we're forgiven. That's the gospel. And that should motivate you to be baptized after you've been saved and follow Jesus Christ with everything you got, which means his teachings as lifelong followers of Christ. Amen? <laughs>